SOS Radio On Demand. It changed my heart. On Demand. It changes your life. Thanks for downloading Scott Harold's podcast. From guardian angels and messengers and warrior angels or even angels in the outfield, the Bible talks a lot about God's accomplices. And Michael Heiser is a Bible scholar. He spent a big part of his career studying who angels actually are. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So we want to understand what angels are actually all about and how God uses them. We really got to go back to the Bible if we want to be able to sort the facts from the fiction. Yeah, that'd be a nice idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know it sounds kind of goofy, but I just had the idea that wouldn't it be nice if the way we talk about angels actually could be found somewhere in the biblical text. What a concept. So in your book, Angels, you explain how there's different types of angels. I just think as Americans, we just kind of lump all these roles together. But God has messengers and warriors and guardians. and Yeah. I mean, the terminology is important, and that's kind of where we get messed up, which is unfortunate because that's pretty much the place where you have to begin. So what I do in the first chapter of the book is I take the biblical terminology and divide it into sort of three buckets. You know, there are terms that describe the nature, you know, the quality of a member of the heavenly host, things like spirit, heavenly ones, you know, the terms that tell you what they are. And then there are terms that describe their status in the heavenly hierarchy. Uh, Sons of God is actually one of those because that's a term drawn from ancient Near Eastern royal court language, you know, and God is king of the heavenly court. And then lastly, there are terms that describe function or role. And that's actually where angel falls into because angel is basically a job description. It describes somebody who takes a message, you know, to somebody else. Cherubim is one of those terms. Seraphim is another one of those terms. Those are throne guardians. Both of those terms, cherub and seraph, are drawn from ancient Babylonian and ancient Egypt vocabulary and and imagery. And that's what they do. They protect sacred space. They protect God's presence from being defiled. But they're job descriptions. And so these terms, cherub, seraph, angel, they're not all the same entity. They're not all the same guy. They just describe roles. It's fascinating because I think we just misunderstand so much of this and we just tend to lump things all together, but God assigns his workers to do different things. And when we smash all those terms together, we get myths like, you know, angels have wings. Okay, whenever the word angel is used in the Bible, you'll never see the person described with wings. But since cherubim and seraphim have wings and we smash those terms together with angel— that's where that idea comes from. It's just you won't ever find it in the Bible. Angels look like people. That's why Hebrews says you better extend hospitality, because you might be entertaining an angel without knowing it. Well, if he had wings coming out of his back, you'd probably know it. <laughs> and when you know what the actual role is for the seraphim or the cherubim, you go, hmm, this is a little different. It feels a little uncomfortable, and it might sound uncomfortable, but a lot of what Christians think they know about angels comes from tradition. You know, we get the Bible sort of filtered through church tradition, and angels with wings is one of those examples. The idea of a third of the angels rebelling before creation or before the fall is another one. There isn't a single passage in the Bible that actually says that. The only place you get third, the word third, an angel, is in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 12, and there you have it associated with the birth of the Messiah. That causes a war in heaven. So, I mean, there's a lot of common myths that float around in churches. We're talking to author Michael Heiser today on SOS Radio. We're talking about how in the Bible it talks about the angels and it talks about demonic forces, but 
It talks about how some angels fell from heaven. At least in Genesis, that's the way we take it in English. But you've actually studied all the Semitic languages. You have PhDs and master's degrees in a lot of different areas, Michael. What does that passage actually say? Yeah, you know, when it comes to rebellion, there are actually three rebellions in Genesis 1 through 11 that sort of set up the whole rest of the Bible. You know, you got the first one in Genesis 3 where you have a member of God's heavenly host that comes in the form of a serpent and decides he wants to run the show or he wants to misdirect what God wants. And, you know, we know that figure as the serpent or Satan, but that's only the first of three problems. The next one is Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and that really has to do with depravity. That's why we get verse 5 right after that, you know, that every thought of the imagination of the hearts of humankind was only evil continually. And then the third one is what happens at Babel. You know, we know that the Babel story from Genesis 11, but what most believers don't know is that the Babel event is referred to in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, where the nations are punished by God and assigned to the sons of God. They're allotted to the sons of God, which means God puts the other nations under the charge of lesser members of the heavenly host. Have you ever wondered if the Bible story starts out with everybody worshiping the same God, where do we get all these pantheons? Where do we get all this idolatry? And that's actually the answer. So you've got three things that go wrong. And of course, if you're an ancient Israelite or Jew, you're expecting the Messiah to take care of all three, not just the Genesis 3, the fall problem, but all three of these. The Bible has a lot more to say about angels than we think about. I'm Scott on SOS Radio. And we're talking to Bible scholar Michael Heiser today on SOS. And Michael, reading through the Old Testament, we see like thousands of people that are worshiping the God of the Amorites or the God of the Hittites or any other ites. And are these gods that they're worshiping basically fallen angels that are impersonating God and deceiving people? What you have is in Psalm 82, you have a reference to the fact that the sons of God that are allotted to the nations, again, as a punishment, they become rebels. They become corrupt and sow chaos in the nations. And in fact, later in Deuteronomy 32, around verse 17, they are referred to as Shadim, which English Bibles typically translate as demon. It's actually a territorial entity, which makes sense if they're over the nations. It's geographical. But they go south. They become adversaries to God. They're corrupt, and God is going to judge them. In Psalm 82, that the whole psalm is about that. What an ancient biblical person would believe is that the gods of the nations are real. They are supernatural entities, and we call them different terms. We call them demons. We might call them fallen angels. But they were real entities that were hostile to God's people and to God himself. And that's where we get the beginnings of what we call spiritual warfare, like in Daniel 10, Prince of Persia, the Prince of Greece, these supernatural beings attached to empires. That's where this idea comes from. If you think about what Paul says, Paul uses demons a couple times. Most of his vocabulary for the powers of darkness are terms like principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions, authorities. What do they all have in common? They're all used in the Bible and outside the Bible in Greek for geographical dominion. So this worldview that emerges out of the Babel event gets inherited by Paul, the New Testament, and other New Testament writers, too. That's where spiritual warfare starts, way back at Babel. So after Jesus dies on the cross, does that wipe all that out that we don't need to worry about those things when it comes to, like, curses and all that other stuff that the Old Testament talks about? Or There are a half dozen passages where Paul is talking about the resurrection, and when we talk about that, we think like, hey, I'm going to be at my ideal weight. Hey, I'm going to get a new body. Hey, I'll look like I want. Paul's head, his mind does not go to his personal you know, body. 
Instead, when Paul talks about the resurrection, he links it to the defeat of the rulers and the principalities and the powers of darkness. And what that means is that all the other nations that were put under and allotted to these other gods, those are the Gentiles. And when Paul links the resurrection to their demise, what he's saying is that, look, Gentiles, you no longer have to serve these authorities. Yes, I set the system up. Yes, they became corrupt. Yes, I was punishing you. But now, because of Jesus, you not only are allowed to come back into the family, I demand it, because I am the Most High. Jesus is the Most High in the flesh. And God says, look, we're done with that. The time of your punishment is over. You can abandon the worship of these other gods. But the problem is that these supernatural powers, they're not just going to you know, go away. They're not going to take their ball and go home. They fight for their turf. They fight for their authority, even though it's been nullified and delegitimized. They still want what they think is theirs. Angels take on a lot of different forms in the role of God's kingdom. And one role we hear about all the time are guardian angels. And we're talking with author and Bible scholar Michael Heiser on Esquimus Radio today. And Michael, a lot of misconceptions we have about guardian angels are what their purpose actually is, because a lot of us think their job is to follow us around and protect us and watch over us. But that's not really the way it's set up, because the Bible's not about me. It's about Jesus. Right. Every one of us suffers loss and, and has evil done to us. The guardian angel thing is a biblical idea, but a lot of it depends on how you define guardianship. Most people would be familiar with Matthew 18.10. This is sort of where the guardian angel idea kind of comes from, at least in pop Christianity, where Jesus says, you know, don't harm any of these little children, because I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father, who is in heaven. And we interpret that as, again, protection. And it might be, but it might be other things. In the Old Testament, you know, there was this sense that angels were watching people, that they were sort of assigned to keep track of what happens to people. And the point is not that God is a bad memory. Okay, the metaphor is there to inform us that God doesn't miss any detail of what happens to us. So angels would report to God about what's going on. They would take messages. When Job is suffering, one of his friends who can't comfort him, instead he makes it worse, he says, hey, Job, this is Job 5.1, to which of the holy ones are you going to plead your case? There was this notion that angels were sort of mediator figures or advocates on our behalf, and they would go to God and plead our case. That's actually what you have in Matthew 18.10, and that's part of a bigger complex about heavenly books. You know, we think of the Book of Life, but there are actually five or six different kinds of books that are mentioned in the Bible where God keeps track of everything that goes on. And again, the, the point is, not that he has a bad memory, but he wants to convey the notion that he doesn't miss anything. And so this guardianship idea comes with mediation and advocacy and representation and messaging and give and take. But what's really fascinating is when you get after the resurrection, angels no longer fulfill that role, those roles. It's Jesus who's talked about as the lone mediator. It's Jesus who is the advocate in First John. And there's actually a shift there. We know from Hebrews 1, angels are still here to assist those who will inherit salvation. That's Hebrews 1.14. But the whole idea of angelic interest in our lives is much bigger than what we think of in terms of guardian angels. Thanks for downloading the SOS Radio Podcast. If you enjoy the discussion and want to help the podcast grow, you can make a $10 donation through sosradio.net or inside the SOS Radio app. Thanks for your generosity. It helps us experiment with new things and keep the discussions fresh.